0: Michael, we can't really talk about fashion without discussing the industry's environmental impact, which is why we're excited to dive into the new vapor wash technology from AG Jeans.
1: This is one of the most environmentally friendly wash processes to date, using 65% less water and chemicals than traditional practices. AG Jeans uses electromechanical shock to convert a mixture of water and wash solution to create nanobubbles, which results in zero discharge.
0: They have also done away with sandblasting along with harsh bleaching chemicals in favor of eco friendly laser processing. It's safer for workers and better for the environment.
1: An AG Jeans factory in Los Angeles is even powered by solar panels, which means decreased energy usage. Find out more at AGGeans.com.
0: Happy Saturday, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail.
1: And I'm Michael Haney, a deputy editor here at Airmail. Welcome to the showgram.
0: <laughs> showgram? Is that what we are now?
1: When it came to me this morning when Brooke said, are you doing the show today? I said, the program, and I said, it's a showgram. It's not a podcast. It's a showgram.
0: We're here to entertain and enchant, Michael.
1: Entertain and inform and enlighten. That's our mission.
0: God, all right. Well, we have our work cut out for us.
1: We do. And welcome back from London. We're going to have one here all about it. You were over there as the airmail ambassador. What do you got? How was it? Great. Was it great?
0: I mean, I am so high on a heady mix of adrenaline, white wine, and espresso. It's ridiculous. It's more fun than should be legally allowed in five days. Obviously, London is our spiritual home here at airmail. We have so many fantastic, talented writers out of there. A lot of stories coming out of London all the time.
1: felt like everything was tipping over, so.
0: Listen, I am recording. I'm recording live at the airmail office today and because it's so echoey I am sitting on a box of wine in a closet. I think that one of Chris Garrett's coats is right next to my head. Hi Chris. And that's what we're doing here. So if you hear random bottles jostling around, it's just because I am falling on my makeshift seat. Ignore me. And,
1: and the airmail closet filled with bottles of wine and, and you sitting on them. It's a perfect welcome back from London.
0: It, it is. I think I'm resting my back on a case of, of Clicquot. I love it. No, it was really ridiculously fun. I mean, one of the things that we love about our job, Michael, is you know the writers that we get to work with. They really are the lifeblood of airmail. And I hadn't seen a lot of them in two years. And you know to get to go to dinner with Stu Harrod and Joseph Bullmore and Vassie Chamberlain and Tom Chamberlain and David Downton and of course Rachel Johnson who was one of the funniest people on the planet two years. I also finally got to see our newsstand for the first time on Children's Street and I was really impressed by what they've done with that space. Not only a beautiful place to my magazines but they've turned the back two rooms into an art gallery of sorts and Tracy Emin had an exhibition there during Freeze so we had a really fun little coffee party and a lot of our friends showed up. I got to see Susie Menkes another one of our writers it just put me in a great mood so I'm thrilled to be back and I want to thank everyone in London for the incredible hospitality and for your enthusiasm for airmail, which is like nothing I've ever seen really. So-
1: now that you've had the high road in London, I'm going to take you on the low road to London and a terrific piece of writing this week by Roya Nika. You might file us under the headline Duke of Hazard. It's about the problems facing Prince Andrew. Coming around the bend, as we might say, as Ghislaine Maxwell, her court date here in the US, facing charges of sex trafficking on behalf of Jeffrey Epstein, comes up. As it does, the heat is on Prince Andrew, right?
0: Yeah, so many intriguing trials for us to pay attention to. By the time Elizabeth Holmes wraps up, we're going to have Ghislaine Maxwell coming into court. Uh, that should be at the end of November. And until then, Prince Andrew is not going to be able to catch a break. It turns out in Buckingham Palace, he's not even visible in the Queen's Pit pictures of his daughter's wedding. Ouch. Prince William even finds him quote-unquote triggering. So that's not a good place to be in terms of family dynamics.
1: And the sort of courtiers and the people around Buckingham Palace and the Queen, the royal family, they've been sort of talking quite a bit lately and some of the facts, he tried to avoid these to be subpoenaed and have papers served against him, accusations he was hiding behind his mother's sort of aprons but you know he's been served now and I guess an indication of how serious it's gotten he has recently hired Hollywood lawyer Andrew Brettler who has represented celebrities accused of sexual assault and harassment which indicates a change in strategy that he's going to get aggressive but as historians Tessa Dunlop says the bigger picture is that the drip, drip, drip against Andrew, it's impacting the queen and the whole royal family, tarnishing the image, and by implication, Britain's too. So, as I said, the Duke of Hazard he's sort of become persona non grata or persona non visible within the royal family. He's in for a, a difficult few months, for sure, right?
0: Yeah, as one of our writers said to us at dinner at the Wool Slate, here's the thing about the royals. We all love the Queen and hate the rest of them. And it's so true, especially in the case of Prince Andrew. Like this guy, even if he does successfully clear his name, as his lawyer's claim he's going to do. The damage inflicted by all of this press coverage is lethal. There's no coming back for him after this.
1: Yeah, well, we'll be watching the trial of Elaine as it emerges here in New York and watching for how the Duke of Hazard Hazard's forward.
0: Yeah. In London, I was talking to Susie Menkes about this and she said she made reference to the future queen. And in my mind, I thought, oh, Kate Middleton. And Susie looked at me like I was a complete idiot and said, no, Ashley, Camilla. I was like, oh, right. Camilla Parker Bowles has played this brilliantly because we forget that she exists. You know, she has been so under the radar and to a certain extent, Prince Charles as well, right? That they're letting all of this furor happen around them. It's really smart of them to It's really smart of them to maintain such a low profile because there will be a regime change soon. The Queen is 95 after all. And if they have any hopes of maintaining a bit of the dignity and glory that she has experienced for these past 60 plus years, it's going to be crucial that they try to elevate themselves above the fray.
1: For sure. You know who's trying to elevate themselves above the fray these days? Tell me. Above the earthly fray. It's the battle of the billionaires in the space race. But this is a story that I would file under projectile dysfunction. Specifically, Mr. Lauren Sanchez, Jeff Bezos, who made headlines last week for bringing William Shatner at 90 years old into suborbital space. But as Daniel Oberhaus points out in this week's issue, this perceived space race among the billionaires is... A lopsided victory, not for Bezos, but in fact, Elon Musk. And it's Jeff Bezos, Blue Origin. You think he's doing all this stuff, but in fact, SpaceX has total dominance in the rocket industry. And it's not what people would expect. But Musk and SpaceX have conquered all the firsts, money more than Bezos has. And it's got a lot of people wondering what the heck has gone wrong For Bezos at Blue Origin, he had all these lofty visionary goals. He's got these dreams of moving heavy industry off Earth and into space to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And there's no doubt he has plenty of vision. But the question is, why can't the second richest man in the world execute on any of it
0: totally fascinating stuff and it does beg the question how much of this is just about ego
1: bezos whatever he didn't even get the glory of being the first billionaire to ride his own rocket into space just two weeks before he flew to the edge of space this summer richard branson completed a suborbital flight in his own space plane with Virgin Galactic. So you've got Bezos, who has $200 billion, that's his net worth, and he spends roughly a billion out of his own pocket every year on Blue Origin, but he just can't seem to execute. But it's going to be interesting to watch it play out and see if he can leapfrog over Elon, who for now is a guy not riding up in the rockets, but succeeding with the rocket launches.
0: I'm with Prince William on this one. Like, why don't we focus our attentions on protecting the planet we already have? But one of the things, as you know, and everyone else in our office knows, I can't look away from the Lauren Sanchez Instagram account. It's everything I want in life. It's totally fascinating to me what's going on psychologically with Bezos at this moment, because clearly he's found new love. He just created this Bezos Earth Fund with a commitment of $10 billion, which will be dispersed as grants within this decade to fight climate change. And he has put his girlfriend as the vice chairman of this fund. And she has no experience in environmental matters. And this is something everyone at Amazon and in the Bezos sphere and in the philanthropic sphere is talking about. And it's a story that's continuing to unfold. So I I really look forward to reading all the books written about what on earth is going on with Bezos at this point in his career.
1: You know what else is questionable behavior? Please. Smoking in restaurants.
0: Okay, I love this story. I should just take the responsibility for this now. This was my idea. It's a crazy story. Elena Claverino wrote it for us.
1: This is your version of basically being in a bar at one in the morning and you're like, hey, does anyone have a cigarette? This is you like, like getting everyone like indulging their worst instincts. But it's a fun, interesting story, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I was at lunch with Elena Claverino a few weeks ago. She's one of our writers and we were talking about story ideas as we often do. And I said, wouldn't it be funny just to do a story that's essentially a list of places where you can still smoke inside? Some people are going to like this story. Some people are going to hate this. What we were trying to do here is just like, remember when things were different. Remember when things were so much less consequential. And at these places, whether it's the Torre de Pisa in Milan or Paul's Baby Grand in New York, the smoke will never clear.
1: No, you might call this story Tobacco Road to Perdition.
0: Michael, your headlines are on fire today. What is going on?
1: Just give me a little context. That's all I'm doing. I love it. Put that in the ashtray and move on.
0: Anyway, so those of you who are still smoking, we've got a list of all the places around the world where you can do so inside. Presented without comment. For the record, kids don't smoke. For the record, Michael and I do not endorse smoking. As you know, we worship at the altar of goop and would never do anything or put anything in our bodies except for helpful adaptogenics.
1: You know who else is not smoking anymore these days? No. Or you're probably not seeing any smoking if you looked at the, the movies across the last 50, 60 years. It's someone we might call bland. James Bland. We've got a story this week (laughs) by Camilla Long about No Time to Die, the latest 007 film with Daniel Craig. And she's saying, yeah, it's Bland, James Bland. And she's saying that the movie's good, fine, but she said it just felt completely empty of anything and that she feels that Bond, for example, cannot now have sex with anyone for fear of coming across as gropey or too masculine and that he's kind of been handcuffed in a way by how the times and expectations have shifted around him. So he's been kind of declawed and had his gun holstered, whatever your analogy might be. I
0: mean, this is what happens when you kill your heroes.
1: Yeah. She says it's kind of this, he's been drained to the point of nothingness by fretful committees of, and that it sort of leaves her feeling it's a flavorless drip of nothing specific that won't offend anyone. But I think still bond is bond right
0: bond is still bond this is why old movies exist if this one disappoints you there are dozens to choose from
1: exactly
0: okay michael Graydon always says we have the best book reviews of any publication naturally we wholeheartedly agree and this week doug mcgrath reviews solid ivory memoirs which is written by james ivory he's the 93 year old director the ivory and merchant ivory and the plus ultra of literary filmmakers but doug writes i love this one thing he did not expect to find in the memoirs was so much talk about penises. And by quite so much, he says, I mean any. There's a lot of male genitalia in this book for many different reasons. And that's only one of the reasons it's such an intriguing read.
1: Uh, yeah, and but also James Ivory and all those films. You know what I always think? I just assumed James Ivory was British, right? I mean, he's got that world he creates and all those. And yet, here's a guy, as Doug points out by reading the book, he grew up in Klamath Falls, Oregon. So... Who
0: knew? I mean, that's wild. I also didn't realize this—that he had been tapped to direct *Call Me by Your Name* with Luca Guadagnino. Didn't know that. Ivory actually won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for the film, but he was, for some reason, ousted as the co-director. There had been disagreements about casting, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, its an interesting take.
1: Well, also surprise is that *The Remains of the Day*, one of his biggest breakthroughs, was originally to be directed by Mike Nichols. So Hollywood it's full of surprises as is our book review.
0: Exactly. Doug, thank you for this fabulous review. And everyone, please read not only Doug's review, but also this book. Sounds completely fascinating and essential for even casual fans of film history. Well, Michael, you know we love a good sex scandal here on Morning Meeting, especially when it involves French politicians. George has a funny little item in his diary this week about Francois Mitterrand's funeral in 1996, which was attended by both his wife, Danielle, and his longtime mistress, Anne Pinchot. Turns out that (laughs) there was a third lover in the room, According to a book just published by the Le Monde journalist Solander Royer, there's a woman named Claire who was 50 years younger than Mitterrand, and the two had a little calca shows going on at the time of his death. It began as a lark. She was a student in Paris studying law. He was president. Claire wanted to meet him. She waited like a groupie, according to reports, near the entrance to the flat in the Latin Quarter where he lived part of the time. They met him. They had an affair. And she was also at his funeral. Who knew?
1: There's a sort of well-known photograph of his funeral where he's got the wife and the mistress there. But as this piece points out, you say that now there's a third woman who's appeared. But just want to note for the record, Claire, which was Mitterrand's nickname for her, was eighteen when she arrived in Paris in nineteen eighty four to study law, and she was fifty years younger than Mitterrand when the affair began. So
0: just when you thought you couldn't be surprised anymore by scandalous age gaps among lovers.
1: Falls under spring-winter romances. Indeed. She got her man.
0: Yeah, no, uh, that's a memoir I'd read.
1: I once saw Mineran in Ferris. You did? Yeah, I was at La Palette, a little place over on the left bank, and he was sitting at the table next to me. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's a good one.
1: Having a little glass of wine in the afternoon. I didn't see Claire with him, though, so.
0: It's too bad. You're (laughs) lost. That would have been a good one.
1: I know. I know.
0: What's your best celebrity sighting ever?
1: Jackie Kennedy.
0: What? Where was she?
1: She was in line at a movie theater off town on the east side years ago.
0: What was she seeing?
1: Oh, what were we seeing? I don't remember now. I equate celebrity sightings like bird watching. It's like, it's like the rarest office that you like Jackie Kennedy and, you know, just she was just in line
0: with everyone else. New York is so weird. How about you? I went through security with Meryl Streep at Newark a couple of months ago. It's kind of cool. I was like, how oh, she looks familiar. It's Meryl Streep. It was a good one. And I saw Suni Previn in a fitting room at a sample sale.
1: Speaking of Paris, can you tell us about the hottest new hotel in Paris?
0: Oh, I like this. Everyone's talking about this place. It's called Cheval Blanc. It's in the new Samaria. So Samaria, a lot of scandal and drama. But this is a new hotel that just opened last month. It's owned by LVMH. And as Alec Lebrano writes in this week's issue, it is the Louis Vuitton of hotels. And I'm not sure that Alec thinks that's entirely a good thing. The interiors were designed by Peter Marino. Am I allowed to call him our favorite leather daddy? No. Yes. No. I don't know.
1: That's for the listeners to decide for sure.
0: All right. Well, he has a very specific personal style that we love. Anyway, it was designed by Peter Marino and. The interiors are very sparse, very corporate. Shades of beige, champagne. It's all very luxe and... and neutral feeling. And Alec writes about, yes, Paris has gained a hot new hotel that everyone wants to stay at, but also look at what we've lost. And in typical Alec Lebrano fashion, a story about a hotel ends up being a recollection of the good old days when he used to spend $4 drinking white wine on the roof of the of La Samaritan But he gets at the heart of really what's going on in hotels and, and in the travel industry these days, as people seem to be chasing luxury after luxury, what is lost?
1: Yeah, it has the best views of the city, which are on the on the roof, the rooftop brasserie, as he said, which make Parisians of a certain age nostalgic for a summer ten, the department store you mentioned. But I look 72 rooms loaded with amenities, one of which I thought you might appreciate, which is the hair salon run by Rosano Ferretti, who is Kate Middleton's favorite hairdresser. So and they've got four restaurants blah, blah, blah. It's loaded with the perk button.
0: It sounds great, Michael. It sounds great. But here's my contrarian point of view. As I actually prefer to stay in a hotel that inspires me to get out of the hotel and go see the city. To me, that's the beauty of travel, right? If the hotel is too nice and you just find yourself ordering room service and watching television, doesn't that sort of defeat the purpose? All right, Michael. Well, we're going to delve into one of our favorite topics here on Morning Meeting, which is, that's right, film history. And our guest today is the one and only Mark Seal, the American journalist and author. Uh, he became a freelance magazine writer in 1984 and has since been the genius behind many of our favorite stories uh, obviously was a longtime contributing editor at Vanity Fair author of I don't know 15 books many books one of our favorite books was The Man in the Rockefeller Suit which was about the impersonator of the Rockefeller family and then his latest is all about the making of The Godfather and it is called Leave the Gun Take the Cannoli the epic story of the making of the Godfather. We love how AG Jeans has reimagined its production practices to make them safer for workers and friendlier to the environment. With a vertical structure, AG has been a leader in progressing manufacturing processes towards a more sustainable future with early and significant investments in ozone technology, laser finishing, solar energy, and most recently, water recycling.
1: Today, AG recycles over 100,000 gallons of water per day with the goal to recycle over 50 million gallons per year. And now, the brand has used its new vapor wash technology in a stylish collection of jeans for men and women. In addition to a full range of silhouettes, there is also a unisex denim jacket, all made using this new wash technology that uses 65% less water and chemicals.
0: Each vapor wash style has been updated with sustainable packaging, sporting a sustainable cellulose-based patch that is 100% vegetarian and biodegradable. Explore the entire collection at aggenes.com. We're thrilled to have you, Mark. You've written so many wonderful books that we have loved, and this is just the latest in your canon. And we want to hear, first of all, how did you get started down this, this road of research?
2: Well, in 2008, uh, Graydon Carter was kind enough to assign me to uh, write a story about the making of The Godfather, a film that had obsessed me since I watched it as a college freshman in March uh, 1972. And it began there. And I went to L.A. and I was able to interview the cast, uh, the crew, many members of the cast and crew, as well as Robert Evans who has since sadly departed. And uh, so that even deepened my fascination for the film. And uh, I always wanted to do more with it because I felt like I had some, some interviews uh, that were really, really uh, incredible. And some of the people had passed, as I said. So I started working on the book and uh, here we are.
1: You just use the word fascinating about the film, but I, I spoke about the, your book last week or so about, I got an advanced copy, I read it, And it's as fascinating, if not more, than the film. And it begins, you know, you sort of begin, the piece we're running this week is an excerpt about how Mario Puzo came to write the book. You know, it takes us right back to the beginning, which...
2: Exactly. So Mario Puzo is the great hero of this story. I mean, here he was. He had written two books, uh, and both of them were critically well-reviewed, but didn't make any money. He was making a little bit of a living as a magazine writer. He was a Pulp Fiction writer and one of the best Pulp Fiction writers. One day he was going uh, probably down to Pearl's, his favorite Chinese restaurant. I'm not sure exactly where he was going, but he was in a taxi. And at the moment he arrived at his destination, fell out of the taxi, had a severe gallbladder attack, and as you say, found himself laying in a gutter, and at that moment, he says, I'm done writing for art. I'm going to write for money.
1: Again, when the, your book is just riddled with surprises. You know, for all, all longtime Godfather fans, you're still going to find new news on every page. One of the things I loved, speaking of Puzo, is in this film that is such a macho world, right? Who is his model for Don colion
2: His mother. <laughs> his mother was a fierce... Italian-American mother who uh, raised him, you know, he said, I had every uh, intention of going wrong, but I, he couldn't because the Italian-American family structure was too strong. And so he said some of the greatest lines uh, that came out of Don Corleone's mouth came from his mother. And uh, And I think that's just great because, you know, the, the thing about Mario... The magic that he created was making these men not just hardened criminals and killers, but family men. They were uncles and grandfathers and brothers, and they had families. And so just like Mario Puzo was raised in a big Italian-American family in Hell's Kitchen, the Corleones were a family too. That's what makes the novel and the film so great and what makes you really fall in love with both.
0: Well, Mark, one of the stories I loved most was about the inspiration for the character of Kay. And this is a wild story about a random dinner party on Long Island that actually pulls in another one of our favorite authors of of mafia lore and history. So tell us the story about when Puzo met the Talises.
2: Yes, yeah, so Gay Talese told me this story. He said that uh, there was a dinner at the Pelleggi home, and it was the mother of uh, Nick Pelleggi. And at that dinner, as I write in the book, it was the future of mob literature. There was Gay Talese, who wrote Honor Thy Father, uh, Nick Pelleggi, who wrote Wise Guy, and there was Mario Puzo, who was in the process of writing The Godfather. During this dinner, according to Gay Talese, Mario saw Nan Talese, his wife, and she was kind of a, you know, a different, she was an, an upper crust, uh, you know, raised, uh, woman from New York. And Gay said that later Mario told him that she became the model for Kay Adams, uh, who was, of course, the unlikely, uh, who became the unlikely wife of, uh, Michael Corleone. It was an amazing scene because there at that dinner, there they were. Diane Keaton just inhabits that role with this quiet intensity. And I think Mario created that on the page. You know, according to Talise, he used uh, his wife, Nan Talise as a model who is now one of the acclaimed editors in New York. So um you know it was a story that really gave gave an insight into his creativity and his and the way he worked the other thing that i was able to do with this book is i was able to access some of the documents in the mario puzo archive at dartmouth university and it's amazing to see his scrawly red felt pen handwriting on the page because He was a writer who went by the seat of his pants, I guess. And he was, but you see these folders, he would write on these big, Old manila folders, and they were like index folders, you know, that you would store documents in and he would just write scenes out. It's barely legible, but you can see the magic of it all coming together.
0: Well, I was going to say, I mean, he's a character straight out of The Godfather himself. I love this anecdote about, you know, in July of 1968, he turned in his rough draft of the novel, not because he was proud of the work, but because he had no money and he had promised his wife and kids he would take them to Europe. You know, he ends up using that $1,200 to borrow money against, right?
2: Yeah, he goes to gamble on the the resorts of the of the Riviera, you know. He said it didn't matter that I didn't have any money, but I had a nice collection of credit cards he later wrote, and he was able to get, you know, like $800 advance or whatever on the credit card. So when he came back to New York after this trip, he was even more in debt, and he called up his agent or his publisher and they said uh, he was hoping to get an advance or maybe he would uh, she would pull a, a magazine article out of her hat, as she had done so many times before. And first of all, he left and told them, do not show this to anyone. It has to be polished. He left the rough draft of The Godfather, but they showed it to a publishing a paperback house and the paperback house offered four hundred Plus thousand dollars.
1: Well, you, you, I think you pointed out it was also a record for anyone who had paid for paperback rights at that point. He's all excited. What does he do? Like any good Italian boy, he calls his mother. Right?
2: He calls his mother, and she says, <laughs> She says, uh, "You know, you got 40000 $40, dollars," and he goes, "No, ma, I said four hundred thousand dollars." And he, and he later, you know, he can't get any satisfaction, and he later says uh he calls her back and he says ma i told you it was four hundred thousand. she goes yeah i heard you don't tell anybody she said
1: that scene of you know you've got puzo trying to write his way into some money and he's got all this research and, and just how you describe him sitting in the basement of his long home he's got five kids upstairs making noise he's down there on his typewriter banging this out it's, it's an inspiring story for i think for for people as well
2: right It is such an inspiring story. It's Horatio Alger come to life. It's a man who didn't, you know, nobody believed he would become a writer. Nobody gave him a chance, you know, that he would do this. And he becomes one of the greatest and most best-selling writers of our time. He created this family, the Corleones.
1: You mentioned family a minute ago, and I also love your insight and, you know, is about the, the, the Corleone compound out there in Long Island, which Puzo modeled after who?
2: It's believed it was after the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport. That's what's been said.
1: Which I'm sure Bobby Kennedy re- really had to love, right?
2: Exactly. You know, that compound, though, wasn't really 100% like you see it in the film. They they built styrofoam walls, and I believe they built other styrofoam <laughs> accoutrements to, to really make it that impenetrable compound. But... Again, it's a home. It's a, it's, you know, it's the family. It's the, the place where you see the wedding, where he introduces all the characters so brilliantly. And so, yeah, the compound is another reflection of. Puzo and later Coppola's insistence on making this family. You
1: know, you, you mentioned not only having access to Puzo's archive, but as you say in the introduction, you know, you had a lot of new interviews, you had even access to sort of, I think, uh, Coppola's shooting notes on set and different diaries. What are the, some, some of the most surprising things you learned?
2: Yeah, I was able to get access to a production meeting that Coppola held and he had hired a court stenographer to record. And it shows his brilliance and his genius at creating this film. He was talking about these things in this meeting with his creative team that actually found their way into the film. Like at one point they said, well, after, you know, Don Corleone is shot and Michael and Kay are coming out of Radio City Music Hall, it would be nice to show their confusion. And, uh, you know, when he finds out and maybe somebody said, well, maybe a hot dog vendor with you see steam coming up, but Coppola says, no, I see an old phone booth and Michael's on the inside and Kay is on the outside. And you can see the growing distance between them. But, uh, via the fog on the windows. I mean, those kind of things that he saw, just like he saw the cast before anybody else did. He saw Michael as, as Al Pacino and Sonny would be James Caan. And of course, most of all, Brando as the godfather who nobody wanted. Everybody thought he was washed up and finished. And here he is. He personified. Uh, the godfather so much and won the 1973 academy award for best actor for his role
1: what i love about your book is it it completes it now and 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 it sort of like gives us behind the scenes by the the intimate access you've got the new uh interviews you conducted it brings it to life in a way it's like it's like going into the sistine chapel and Getting an, you know, and getting someone to take you behind, you know, in, in in into the sacristy and show you how the whole thing is, is you know, so I really,
0: it's, uh, I can't rave enough about it.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying that, Michael. My pleasure.
0: Mark, thank you again for joining us. And we're so thrilled to have you on. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you too, Ashley. Thank you so much.
0: Okay, Michael, well, in addition to recommending wholeheartedly a viewing of The Godfather, do you have anything else, any other suggestions for us?
1: I do. I have one. It's a film that came out about a week before lockdown in the theaters, and it kind of got lost in the shuffle. It eventually ended up on your favorite pay-per-view. I recently saw it on Apple TV, where you can get it, Apple movies. And it is, if you enjoyed Mayor of Easton, the Kate Winslet HBO Plus show that was on earlier this year that everyone loved, including you, right, Ashley?
0: Yes, indeedy.
1: You should watch The Way Back. It's a film with Ben Affleck, and what is great about it, among many things, is it's written by Brad Inglesby, the guy who wrote Mary Easton, and in this film, in which Affleck plays a iron worker who is living separated from his wife, he's a semi-alcoholic, and he gets asked by his high school principal to come back and coach the high school basketball team. So there's a lot of the themes that Inglesby even sort of like was exploring in Mary's former high school basketball star, down on their luck, struggling, missing child. But it's beautifully written. Affleck gives a tremendous performance and it's super taught. I just think it's it's a terrific film. As I say, if you enjoyed Mary Easton, you're going to really like this, I think.
0: Marvelous. Thank you. And you, dear? All right. Well, Some people are going to laugh at me, but that's okay. I know we have some Gen Z listeners who have never seen this movie, and it's incredibly good. Michael, when's the last time you saw The Bridges of Madison County?
1: That would be the third of never.
0: Uh, Wait, seriously?
1: I've never seen it.
0: (laughs) I'm not being (laughs) a snob.
1: I just never saw it. I think it came out, and I missed
0: it. (laughs) Okay. The fact that it's been 25 years since its release and you've never seen it, this is a tragedy that must be corrected immediately. I watched it on the plane back from London. I was sobbing in my seat for the last 45 minutes straight. This is such a good movie. It came out in 1995. It was based on the best-selling novel of the same name by Robert James Waller. And it was produced and directed by Clint Eastwood. He also stars in the film alongside Meryl Streep. It is incredibly well written, incredibly well acted, and a total heart wrencher. If you're looking for a sad but beautiful love story, I highly recommend it. I think it's like probably the best romantic drama, one of them, of the last 40 years. Can I say that? 30 years? I don't know. It's just like, this like totally moved me and it moved me when I saw it then. It moved me when I saw it today. It's all about you know the choices that we make in life and, and how we prioritize the various people in our lives, including ourselves, and what the repercussions of that are generationally. So it's a fabulous, fabulous film. And it's also a nice way to transport yourself to the countryside of Iowa for a couple of hours.
1: Done. Okay. I like it.
0: You can watch it on Amazon. You can watch it on iTunes. You can watch it on United Airlines. It's up to you. All right, Michael. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. We feel very fortunate to have such engaged and intelligent and generally extremely cool listeners. And we'd like to give a a special thanks to our sponsor for this week's episode, AG Jeans. And Michael, will you please read us out?
1: Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Emily Davis is our CMO, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining us.